Some companies still know how business casual is done. It's strictly business. Doom, 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 doom. Start beatboxing over the beat when we come in. Yeah. I'm not really like a trained beatboxer. I just I had to beatbox for my acapella group in uh, college. That was pretty solid. I can keep beat, and I know how to add the like energy. Sure. But when it comes down to like, oh my god, that guy's a professional beatboxer. Like I don't have the sounds that you would like turn your head for. Right. But. I, I'm definitely capable. I'd say I'm a good 7 out of 10. I'm passable on beatboxing. You give yourself like a B, B minus? I'll stay with 7 out of 10. Okay. J- and, you know, we'll let the audience decide. I'll, I'll beatbox my way out of the show. And then, <laughs> <laughs> Please, leave your ratings and comments only on my beatbox performance. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, please. <laughs> Man, Daniel, there's so much to talk about that I was sitting... Like yesterday, it was so easy for us to put the show together because there were just so many great stories that we wanted to talk about. I know. And then I was at home last night just kind of browsing news and things like that and saw like two or three other stories. It was like, I can't believe we're not going to talk about this, but we just literally don't have the time. I know, man. It's tough. And, uh, you know, not to mention Star Wars trailer just dropped. I know. Like, uh, would I love to talk about that? Yeah. But do we have time? (laughs) No. No. Unfortunately, we don't. Everyone, uh, we never introed the show. If you're a first-timer, hello. I'm Daniel Litwin, the voice of B2B. I'm Tyler Kern, the colonel. The colonel. The colonel, whatever else. Ten, (laughs) ten, And this is Business Casual. This is Business Casual. Market Scale's morning radio show, live every Wednesday and Friday at 9 a.m. Central. Yes, sir. We bring you the fun. We bring you the business. We bring you the casual in the B2B world, breaking down some fun stories and some hot topics that we think are really driving different industries forward, either creating issues or opening doors for potentially exciting new futures. So we are excited to bring you a lot of quality content today. Tyler, before we jump in, any uh, any light story you just want to toss out there? You said you found a lot of good stuff last night. Is there anything that just caught your eye that we can tease ahead for maybe a later show? Ooh, that's a really good question. Well, I I will tell you that coming up after our show today at 9.30, as is the case every Wednesday from here on out, diving into data is going to take place with T.C. Riley. He is our head of data and analytics here at MarketScale. And we are going to be talking about the NBA, which kicked off again last night. So they started their 2019-2020 season uh, in the NBA last night. A big matchup between the two L.A. teams, the Lakers and the Clippers. And, uh, yeah, I was just enjoying watching basketball again, and there's just so much going on with them. Uh, But the big thing that always stands out to me is the increased use of advertisements on jerseys. And so that's one of the things that stood out to me. We've done uh, I've done a podcast in the past on it, but uh, they increasingly are using patches, like a little a brand patch, advertising a company on NBA jerseys. And I think that we're only going to see that continue to grow. So that stood out to me from watching the NBA last night. Any uh, bizarre uh, companies you're seeing on those patches, you're like, well, wow, I didn't think they would be on an NBA jersey. The Lakers, who are probably the most high-profile team in the NBA to begin with, and now they have LeBron James, mm-hmm. um, they have a patch for that online shopping kind of app, Wish. Oh, yeah. Where you get like kind of discount stuff. That's random. Right? Kind of random because it's <laughs> not... Uh, Wish, while it, uh, you know, 
whatever for whatever it is, it is not necessarily considered high end. I right? mean, Wish is definitely not as big as the L.A. Lakers. Right. You know what I mean? So that that investment that they're making in an NBA team and on their jerseys that must have cost a pretty penny. Exactly. So. Exactly. So yeah. I don't think that came cheap. And so you wonder what the return on investment for Wish is on that. So Very that's something that uh, that stood out to me as I was watching the NBA last night. But more to come on the NBA at 9.30 with TC Rally, so stick around for that. All right, y'all. We've got lots of stories. We're going to be chatting about Netflix. Per usual, they're doing some fun stuff always on the back end. We're going to be chatting with the president of Culinary Tides coming off of Supply Side West. We're going to be chatting about trends in nutrition and in the food professional industry. And we're also going to be chatting a little bit about Lyft, about Uber, about rideshare in general to close out the show. But first, we need to talk about energy. Energy. We need to talk about the climate. Yeah. The the climate done changed. <laughs> it, it done be changing. It done be changing. Yeah. Well, uh, basically, what we're wanting to do for this opening segment is just chat about some... It's actually two different stories we saw about um, basically how the energy industry is responding to climate change. Mm -hmm. Both one that's a little uh, regressive for some. I mean, I think regressive has like a negative connotation to it. But it's just looking backwards and wanting to fix kind of uh, reactively. And then we've also got a story here that really looks at um, companies addressing climate change a little more proactively. Right. And not activists, not organizations, not the government, but actual energy companies within the space are really embracing this idea of how do we move forward while addressing climate change. So, yes. uh, Tyler, I'll, I'll let you open up with the first one. So, yeah, so... The story that we're kind of looking back at, and uh, it's kind of, it's kind of a like you said regressive look at climate change, is there was a big fraud case brought against Amazon that actually took place. Exxon. Exxon. Sorry, what did I say? Amazon. <sighs> <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. Gosh dang it! We talk about Amazon so much. I know. Uh, Amazon. Exxon. <laughs> the New York Attorney General took ExxonMobil to trial in a historic case yesterday um, is when it first kicked off. And the trial could last up to three weeks. And what they're accusing the oil giant of is misleading investors about the company's financial risks due to climate change. And so the, the big thing about this is that Exxon basically took a look at their future and said, yeah. okay, with climate change kind of being a thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> to put it lightly. Yeah, yeah. Amazon. Um, Exxon. Oh, oh my gosh. What is my problem? <laughs> you just, you're wanting to do some online retail shopping today, sir. I got money burning a hole in my pocket. <laughs> just kidding. I don't. Uh, okay, so Exxon, uh, basically, in order to protect themselves from risk, uh, they adopted some aggressive new climate policies, uh, including charging companies for their climate pollution. That sort of, so the basic idea is that Exxon was worried that eventually governments would crack down on companies such as themselves, fossil fuel companies, mm. and charge them penalties and that sort of thing. So Exxon told their investors that it was applying a cost of carbon approaching $80 per ton across its business to account for that potential risk in the future. Okay, mm -hmm. So... They are telling investors, we are very secure in this. We are making big plans for the future in the chance that, you know, eventually uh, governments are going to start cracking down on this sort of thing. Right. But they weren't actually doing that. They were running two sets of books. So by claiming to use a higher carbon cost than it actually was, Exxon made its assets appear more secure than they really were, yeah. which has an impact on its share price, which is 
defrauding investors on, yeah. on some level. So the the challenge is going to be explaining, okay, whether or not ExxonMobil was actually intentionally running two different sets of books to try to fraud its investors. But the basic idea is that Exxon, while also doing this, is also admitting that they, on some level, believe that climate change like is a is a legitimate issue, which is something right. that has not been happening in the past. They and other fossil fuel companies have spent a ton of money trying to make sure that uh, the the climate change conversation stays out of the public sector and that information doesn't reach the regular consumer. Yeah, and I mean, it, it, when you bring when you present it that way, it sounds like a conspiracy theory, but the truth is that it's really not. It is that crystal clear. Uh, there were scientists talking about climate change and making it clear that, hey, what we're doing, you know, maybe 30 or 40 years out could have a pretty big impact. This was back in like the 70s. And, you know, the companies were like, okay, bye, and continued business as usual, if not increasing business as usual. And now we're at the critical point. Now we're talking about things in a very different way. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I have a feeling that in the next decade, we could see more legal action against some of these big uh, energy companies, oil companies mm-hmm. specifically, that kind of went out of their way to misinform or defraud. You know, I'm not right. I, there is definitely enough there to prosecute if someone wanted to. Mm-hmm. I'm not a legal expert, but from what I've read, it seems like, wow, there's a lot of a lot there that could be acted upon. But it really depends on do we want to, you know, who do we want to hold responsible for this and how? Um, So it's it's definitely tricky. You know, when you talk about lawsuits, when you talk about um, prosecuting someone for something, I mean, you got to have your. You got to come correct. You, you got to have your ducks in a row. In a big row, very perfectly filed row, and you have to come correct. You cannot just half ass it. Yeah, when are, I, I just want to know, like, uh, big big tobacco did this back in like the '60s, right? It was deny, deny, deny. Uh, try to release scientific studies saying that no, smoking doesn't actually kill you, doesn't right. actually hurt your lungs, and that sort of thing. When are companies going to realize that the denial thing and the just trying to use misinformation campaigns only work for so long, and that in the end it gets you in more trouble than it's probably worth? And maybe maybe the people that needed to make money off of big oil and made that decision at the time have made their money and they're fine now. Oh yeah, maybe that's the case, and now other people are going to end up taking the fall and get hurt because of it, but. You, you wonder, like, how many times this has to happen before people are like, you know what, that strategy actually doesn't work. Right. Well, briefly, I want to point to something a little more positive, is that not all companies are trying to defraud on the, the basis of uh, climate change and trying to, you know, save their own skins. We actually have engineers in the fossil fuel world that don't really want to be in the fossil fuel world anymore. So what am I talking about? Well, about a thousand Australian engineers and 90 different organizations in Australia, including some large firms, um, including respected thought leaders, business leaders, industry figures in uh, that oil and fossil fuel industry in Australia, have basically signed a declaration to, quote, evaluate all new projects against the environmental necessity to mitigate climate change, end quote. So basically, they're effectively putting environmental impact at the forefront of their business decisions. And what's really cool about this is that it was very motivated by the expertise and the attitudes of the employees themselves in those firms who, at least in Australia, I I think the way they approach that industry is by definitely giving 
the engineers on the ground more of a voice and more of a say because they drive the value for these projects. And I think it's very clear that they drive the value. So if they're not into it and they're willing to either do a worse job or to literally not want to participate, uh, you know, the big wigs money is at risk. Right. Um, and the engineering sector in Australia is really starting to notice that tide is shifting on fossil fuels, at least in public perception. And if they invest too heavily in that work moving forward, mm -hmm. it could make transitioning away even more difficult. So from a business perspective, it actually does make sense to notice that at least public perception on climate change has shifted big time. Mm -hmm. Overton window has shifted. People are viewing it as a threat as a crisis some are even really buying into it's an existential crisis and we need to make something happen around this right and that could affect business big time so if you go all in on i'm going to open up new coal mines i'm going to continue fracking and then in 10 years the crackdowns are even harder yeah your business could definitely die but if you start transitioning now it's true there is more padding time for you to not only look better in the public eye, but, you know, rework your finances and your business model to not rely solely on new fossil fuel projects. And the prime example, um, just to briefly wrap this one up, is is Adani's Carmichael coal mine in Australia. Mm -hmm. It's a really uh, huge and controversial coal mine that they're uh, working to make happen in Australia. And it's a project that... Uh, is getting a lot of heat from environmentalists. So um, it would add 4.6 billion tons of carbon pollution to the atmosphere, could dom damage some aquifers, destroy indigenous ancestral land, but also create a domino effect by unlocking a whole new basin called the Galilee Basin. Right. And this is the scary part, in my opinion, is that if this moves forward, it would open a coal reserve that could then create a scenario where we get at least eight more coal mines being built. So it's basically, if we go all in on Adani's Carmichael coal mine, there could be a future in Australia where we've got eight new ones. And it's like, okay, do we really need to, both from a business perspective and environmental perspective, be pumping in more and more um, coal, carbon, right. and fossil fuels into our atmosphere and into our markets? So it's really cool to see businesses and the people working in those businesses, and at least in Australia, take a hard stand on this. Um, and I'm just interested to see if we're going to get some kind of large-scale consensus from the states because I feel like our energy companies aren't really doing anything like that yet. Yeah, it's a good, it's a really good point. Uh, the first push has to come from consumers, and then the second push has to be a response from companies like what you're seeing there in Australia. And so I'll be interested to see exactly what the uh, what the full kind of ramifications of this are. Agreed. All right, we're going to go to commercial real quick. When we come back, we're going to be chatting with Susie Badaraco. She's the president of Culinary Tides. And Miss Susie is going to be chatting to us a little bit about Supply Side West, as well as what trends are driving the food production and food uh, professionals industry. So we're looking forward to it. We'll be right back. Have you ever thought to yourself, podcasts are pretty cool. I should use one to market my company. Good news. You're not alone. But where do you start? MarketSkills Thought Leadership Club makes it easy to dive into the world of B2B podcasting. With in-house podcast production, audio hosting, and more, MarketSkill can be your podcast partner that sets you up as a thought leader in your industry, creating the content that powers B2B. 
For more information, head to marketscale.com and find out what thousands of companies already know to be true, that podcasting is the future of thought leadership in B2B marketing. All righty, all righty. So we're coming off a supply side west. That was last week, maybe a week and a half ago. Um, And that is a trade show that's all around what's driving the food products industry, everything from technology to nutritional trends. And we wanted to get a quick deeper look at what's exciting and what is troubling food industry professionals. So I'd like to welcome president of Culinary Tides, Susie Badaracco. Culinary Tides is a think tank that is uncovering patterns and chaos for the food industry using forecast results to generate entrance, navigation, and exit strategies for those trends. Susie, welcome to Business Casual. How are you doing? Good. How are you? Uh, we are wonderful. We appreciate your time, and we're looking forward to chatting quickly. So based on the trends that Culinary Tides reports on, uh, which have been the most represented at shows like Supply Side this year, and why do you think those are the trends that are catching hold? Um, I think that some of the top ones were definitely around plant protein and that trend. Um, I was very happy to see insects being represented there with okay. uh, Chapel Farm. Love it. Love them. Uh, the absence of negative is one that's been going on for over a year. So absence of negative means uh, instead of trying to use fear tactics to get someone to go into a trend, right? Like if you don't do gluten-free, you're going to gain weight. It's the absence of negative. You're really just promoting like the positive attributes of whatever the item is. And then um, grains being grains again. So grains keep being villainized by different diets and they keep coming back. So I was very happy to see them back again. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the plant protein, at least, I feel like that is kind of the the buzzword trend that's going around that is actually having a really tangible impact on um, at least uh, QSR and fast food. I mean, the fact that we are seeing so many um, large-scale, you know, like everything from Burger King to, uh, you know, I was out eating, oh yeah, was it Snuffers? Snuffers, great, not quite as fast food, a little more... um, fast casual, uh, but they had the Impossible Burger uh, on their menu, and I tried it. It's delicious, and I think we could be seeing plant protein-based burgers uh, really become a staple in the fast food industry because they don't really challenge people to have to taste or adapt to something different because they really do taste and feel almost identical to a meat-based burger. Well, that's what's so funny about the trend is um, research has already shown it's meat eaters that are eating these. It's not vegetarians. Vegetarians want nothing to do with these things, right? (laughs) Right. I mean, why would you want a plant burger that bleeds? Uh, So it's meat eaters doing it. But what will be interesting to see is um, consumers across the board also say we want simple, we want authentic, you know, we want clean ingredient decks. And these burgers, now that they're going into retail, you actually get to see the ingredient deck, right? These things are highly processed. They have just as much salt and fat as a regular burger. They cost more. So we're kind of curious to see once meat eaters figure this out by looking at the retail packaging, um, how long they're really going to be on this bandwagon for. Right. So Culinary Tide drops an industry report every year, uh, and I want to go over some of the main takeaways from the report real quick um, and how you're seeing them reflected at the show and just in the industry in general. 
Um, so give us kind of your, your elevator pitch for some of these. Uh, small community travel uh, is one of them that really stood out to me. How are you seeing an increased desire to explore some of those hidden small communities uh, across the world? How is that affecting the local cuisine and the tourism ecosystem in those areas? Is it a positive or a negative change? Well, it, that's one of those trends that really is kind of a media darling but really not everybody's partaking of it. Mm. It's it's a very humble thing to do. So this is not a trend where big tourist groups are going to these little communities. The little community couldn't handle a big tourist group. Right. So it's usually singles or pairs that you know are traveling, and then they're either getting picked up by media or they're writing about it themselves. So um, it's part of what we call the underdog best friend and wallflower trend, where it gets a lot of media attention, um, but which is good. I mean, I think that piece is good, but it's not, it doesn't really change what the locals are doing or it's not changing it enough for the locals right. to have to, you know, build hotels or anything like that. What it does is it brings a lot of positive attention to the regions and it's kind of a hip, cool way to travel, but it's certainly not like the family of four is taking two year olds to, to do this. Right, right. Because it, it's not, it's not super convenient to do this kind of travel. And then how about delivery and order technology? Uh, what have been the biggest shifts in personalized and frictionless delivery and order technology? And how do you think that that ecosystem is shifting to benefit the customers and the restaurateurs? Um, so it's kind of what, the, what it's based on is the infiltration of phone apps and then the DoorDash clan, we call them. You know, it's like all these delivery services, right, that are hooking up at the restaurants. But what, um, so, I mean, yes, it's highly convenient. It, it is great, actually, for catering consumers who are less able, for a number of reasons, to leave the house. You know, don't want to leave the house. It eliminates that social hurdle of having to go out to restaurants. Um, but what the technology that's even more interesting is the packaging technology and the delivery speed technologies because that makes all the difference right if you're getting food delivered to your door and it's now not so hot and it's in terrible shape it looks awful the vegetables have all been you know lettuce has been steamed they're never going to order from you again so it's really like what is the packaging technology that's so fascinating and then how how is the delivery speed you know if it means nothing if those mechanics don't work yeah so for restaurants, the most fabulous thing is that they're, they can literally extend their footprint or even eliminate the footprint, not even have a restaurant, by having ghost kitchens Ooh. that all the food's just delivered out of. Right, right. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you bring up the food packaging. Um, you know, I've been having some conversations back here on how food packaging itself is changing to be more environmentally conscious. Uh, to try to address, you know, where is there the most waste in our packaging? How can we eliminate it, mm -hmm. but also keep the food safe and, you know, keep it from spoiling during its transit or while it's sitting at the grocery store? So it's interesting that, um, you know, we're seeing improvements there. And I'm always interested to see how those improvements continue to be green and everything. But Susie, it, it, we're out of time, unfortunately, but thank you so much for joining us and chatting with us here on the show. We'll bring you back on soon because there are some more trends, including cannabis and how that is affecting the industry that we didn't get to that I'd love to chat with you about here sometime soon. So we'll get you back on soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. All right, Daniel. So uh, got to talk about Netflix. We do. Big story here. So Netflix is taking on 
$2 billion in debt to try to beat out their newest streaming rival, which I don't think anyone saw coming but is totally expected, good old Disney. Good old Disney. Good old Disney. I, I saw an ad last night that Disney put out for Disney Plus and like their streaming stuff. It was so good. Dude, I know. Oh, I'm so ready for the new Star Wars shows and the Marvel shows, and I hate that I am because... It, it's like I want to protest in some de- to, to some degree, right? Like, oh, why do you own all of my favorite media? Right. But right. it's like, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I guess pirating is just going to come back, you know? Like, I feel like to a degree that's what we're going to have because everyone wants their own streaming device. Everyone wants their own streaming platform. Of course. With their proprietary shows, and no one can afford all that. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. So Netflix is on track to spend... 15 billion on movies and TV this year. Uh, Disney is on track to spend 24 billion on content this year across its whole media empire. And what we're really seeing is both Disney and Netflix are approaching streaming less from the OG Netflix and kind of Hulu level of we're going to have your favorites that you already know and love. Instead, it's let's create new content Mm -hmm. and embrace it wholeheartedly. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is from Jeff uh, Wol- Wolodercheck. Oh, I really don't know how to say his last name, but he's the principal of Pivotal Research Group. He said, uh, per Netflix, quote, they will need to fund their operations with debt for at least the next three years, end quote, which sounds scary, right? We're going to operate on debt almost indefinitely. However, there really hasn't been an issue paying off that debt, which surprised me when I read more into it. So Variety reported um, that 90% of Netflix content gets paid off within four years of a show or movie's debut, really banking on that content's longevity. So uh, CCO of, um, chief content officer of Netflix, Ted Sarandos, he said that the bidding wars for quote-unquote elite shows like The Office, Friends, Seinfeld. We already saw, you know, a lot of those are shifting from one streaming platform to another. Um, The cost has risen 30% in just one year. So it's already expensive to fork over millions for these shows. And Netflix is instead dropping $2 billion in debt to create more original content, Mm -hmm. original Mm -hmm. movies, original shows. And it really goes to show that owned content is pushing media forward and is pushing streaming forward because really I think to um, validate someone's investment in a Netflix or a Disney streaming subscription, it's going to need to be more than just I can watch Bambi over and over. I can watch my favorite Pixar movies over and over because people could just buy the DVD and move on, right? People could just, uh, honestly, they could just pirate it and move on. But when there's new content that mm-hmm. you can watch only on there and is difficult to find elsewhere online um, or, you know, you want to be part of the national conversation of watching along with these shows. Yeah. It's, it, you start to, as a consumer, weigh that as a worthy investment. So I think this is actually a good move from Netflix, even if it seems scary to go $2 billion in debt. My question, I suppose, is if this becomes a cold war of spending, basically, <laughs> yeah. of just like an arms race of you know, streamable, bingeable content, is there any way that Netflix can actually keep up with Disney? I, I suppose the, the answer is just make better stuff, Yeah, I suppose. But then you, you ask the question, okay, how does 
Netflix continue to grow, and that's by adding new users. So are people that haven't already been enticed by what Netflix has done so far, are there people out there, are there enough people out there to, that are, are still available to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to buy into Netflix now right. because of something new that they have? Well, you know, I, I think they have the right idea on how they approach their content. So this was in the article I found as well that um, – you know, they invest in stuff like Tall Girl. Did you see that movie making its rounds on social media? I didn't. It was getting roasted for being like, this is ridiculous. Like, why are we making a I'm oppressed story for tall people? Like, right. It just was just like bizarre and really out of touch. But it got a lot of buzz and a lot of people watched it. And that was a really cheap investment into a less high quality movie that got a lot of Netflix buzz and people wanted to watch it. Boom. Great marketing. Now, on the complete other end, The Crown the show on yeah. Netflix about Queen Elizabeth that wins Emmys that is you know a a critically acclaimed show with a high budget and that raises the aesthetic value of Netflix and the kind of like intrinsically filmic value True. of Netflix so True. i think they're investing in the right ways they spend cheap money on less quality shows and movies that make a quick buzz but get people intrigued right. and then they also invest big time on really big shows with people like Helena Bonham Carter. I mean, she's going to be on this next episode yeah. or this next season of, of The Crown. So I think they have their marketing game down and I think it's really just going to have to... We're going to have to wait and see how the Marvel and the Star Wars originals perform. It's true. Um, because the uh, Netflix Marvel originals I thought were really solid um, and then they became hit or miss. And I think if... Disney approaches them as just like everyone's going to watch this because it has the Marvel name attached to it. They could be surprised by how little that works mm -hmm. if their content is garbage. That's a good point. Um, people kind of reacted that way to Star Wars. Too much Star Wars content and people were already kind of like, all right, I'm kind of sick of Star Wars now. Because Star Wars intrinsically lives on the epicness of waiting on it and yeah, seeing yeah. it every three years. And if we're overloaded with it, is that actually a good thing for the medium and are people actually going to consume it? So... I don't know. Disney's banking on name recognition for a lot of big content, mm -hmm. and Netflix is having to invent new content to a degree that creates its own version of name recognition. And they did that with Stranger Things. I think they're doing that with The Crown. They've done it with um, other original movies. I mean, they, they did it with Ozark. Things are starting to have a ripple effect. Now it's just a s waiting to see if you know one is going to beat out the other or if they can just coexist peacefully and both have a share of the market. Well, we'll see what happens in the future, but uh, we're going to coexist peacefully right now. <laughs> with <laughs> our good old T.C. Riley. With our good old buddy T.C. Riley. Diving into data is coming up next, but that is all for us today here on Business Casual. Folks, always a good time. I really like these stories, man. Uh, like you said, we didn't even get to all the ones that we planned for today. I mean, I there's too much good stuff to talk about. I think very soon, everyone, we might be extending to an hour. Now, I don't know how soon that's going to happen. For now, just plan on half an hour. But as you can tell, we love to talk. We have takes. We have good stories. So Hot takes. <laughs> All right. So we'll be back here on Friday because we have too much to talk about. But until then, I'm Tyler Kern. I'm Daniel Litwin. And we'll see you again soon. Peace.